Welcome back to The Deeper Cut, a podcast of Mercy Hill Presbyterian Church. Greetings, my name is Tim Pasek. I'm a ruling elder at Mercy Hill, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host and our pastor, Phil Henry. Phil, good, good to see Tim. you, brother. Merry Christmas. Um, we're a few days out from Christmas now. How was your holiday? I love this time of year. It's my favorite holiday, and... I, I think I decided this year that Christmas Eve is my favorite part of the holiday. It's a combination of our church's awesome Christmas Eve service. It's always a highlight for me. And our own family traditions, all the kids converge on the Henry home. And uh, we have lots of fun together and enjoy each other and enjoy uh, we we the the kids have a secret Santa exchange and they always give each other their presents on Christmas Eve, and somehow they manage with their because we give them a limited budget to work with. They wind up giving each other the best presents of the year. <laughs> that th that's that's just how it works out. And then Polly and I give books to all the children, so they each get a book for Christmas, and that's when we do the book exchange as well. It's a great, great holiday. Yeah, sounds like a good time. I'm going to try to figure out how to get an invite to that next year. <laughs> um, before we get any further into Christmas traditions, um, we should introduce our special guest for the day. And in fact, I should mention that we're playing a, an away game today. We're on the road. We took the show on the road. Yeah, yeah. We've left the creature comforts of our studio and have now enjoyed the creature comforts of, of this location. Um, would you like to introduce our guest, Phil? I'll let S you do the honor. Scott Leary in the booming metropolis of Swedesboro, Woolwich. Welcome, Scott. Thanks for welcoming us. Yeah, thanks, for, thanks for coming, guys, to, to the house here. It's good to have everybody here. I feel very privileged to have the deeper cut here at my kitchen table. <laughs> so. so this is technically Swedesboro or Woolwich? Yeah, it's Woolwich. Woolwich. Yep. And did you want to get into the uh, intricacies of South Jersey municipality overlaps? <laughs> From what I understand, if you, if you think about a donut, uh, Woolwich Township surrounds the little tiny borough of Swedesboro, and you, you, you drive through, through town there, and you know, you'll be through it in about two minutes. So, so we were talking about... Uh, productive property a few minutes ago before we started and I think the the geographic orientation of Swedesboro Woolwich is the classic town township dynamic where the the town is sort of the commercial hub right and then the township is the agricultural support network oh, sure yeah and uh, almost on the on the pattern of a French or an English town with its surrounding countryside true yeah harrison townships like that yep. you got you got mulca hill and a couple other areas do that as well so this was founded i'm sure before the 1700s just like uh all the other south jersey towns around here right so ancient world of south jersey <laughs> gloucester county was the first municipality organized by its inhabitants little bit of trivia. I didn't know there. that. Yeah. Which is, I think, to say it was not organized in an English court. 
I do have a, a book on my coffee table, a little history of Swedesboro and stuff like that. I kind of nerd out on that stuff mm -hmm. and the history of the settlers in the 1600s. And, you know, we have one of the original churches and stuff like that. It's cool. Yeah. So you, you thought that um, you were tuning in today to hear about one of the two sermons that were preached over the mm. weekend. Instead, we're just going to talk about South, South Jersey history yeah. for the next 30 minutes. <laughs> I would certainly enjoy it. I probably only have five or ten more minutes in the tank. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like Scott could pick up the slack. Maybe, maybe <clears throat> we could uh, <laughs> detour back to mm. uh, to the deeper cut of the of the right. <laughs> And we have two two great sermons to to talk about today. Actually, I mentioned that we're a few days removed from Christmas, and um, it just so happens that the calendar fell. Uh, kindly to us this year, and we had Lord's Day worship on Christmas Day this year. So um, it was a blessing, Phil. I'll just say from my own personal experience, it was a blessing to hear the word preached Saturday night on Christmas Eve and then again on Sunday morning. So thanks for, I'm sure it was a lot of work for you on a holiday week to prepare two messages, um, but we very much appreciate it. I know I did, and I was I was blessed by that, and my family was. Um, hopefully the effort was a blessing to you in the preparation. It was. I did set myself up for success in a sense because the Christmas Eve service was a, a reworking of a previous sermon that I had preached on Psalm 48. So... 24. Correct. Thank you. <laughs> Psalm 24. There was actually the, you preached on Psalm 24 the Sunday that John Choi preached. On I Psalm 46. On 46 at Mercy yeah. Hill. Yeah. And we alluded to, when we had John as a guest. That's right. That you had been elsewhere preaching. And I said, well, maybe in the future we'll have a chance <laughs> to talk about that sermon. Here's the future chance to talk about the sermon. <laughs> See? So, uh. That's the, the most prognostication I will do. I will do no more. Okay. But, uh. Well, and, it, and it's worth saying that probably a lot of preachers are like this. I, I have trouble preaching the same sermon twice, and there are a few superficial connections. I mean, I, I used a lot of the exegetical and translation work from the first message and the second, but by and large, it was a completely different sermon. Which is appropriate, it, given the fact that it's Christmas Eve, we have one hour, children are present, and it's in the evening. So uh, I actually, we, we usually wind up talking a little bit of homiletics and sermon craft here. It's unusual for me to practice a sermon, but this one I practiced several times because I wanted to hit my my time allotment. Scott's here. He's usually in, in the back of the house at the church house. And if there's someone who sort of, you know, I'm, I'm <laughs> making a gesture at the neck, which looks like I'm cutting off my head. It's like, you know, time's up, brother. He's usually my time's up, brother guy. So in, in respect of all the moms and the kids and the dads and the grandmas and the grandpas and everything else, I wanted to make sure that I kept to my time and it is hard I, I think Samuel Johnson or, or Ben Franklin or one of those 
big guys said, I would have written a shorter letter if I had had the time. <laughs> yeah, it is hard, uh, I think, with any public speaking, but definitely with bridging, to try to keep it in, in a confined um, space. Because you could talk for forever on these things. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you could. Mm -hmm. Thus, we have a podcast about it. That's true. How do you uh, feel with Christmas Eve, like with so many other visitors and stuff to you? Um, does that feel a little different? You're not preaching to, well, you are preaching to your church, but does, do the people feel different because it's Christmas Eve or does that kind of affect how you deliver this, a sermon in some ways? So I mentioned time. So... Uh, some dear friends of mine have one of the best compliments at Mercy Hill I've gotten is I love it when Phil preaches these special services. He kills it every time. Or yeah, I'm not quoting, but it was some really beyond what I deserve, but extremely encouraging. But also a reminder that there is value to these kind of succinct 10-minute messages which is n normally we give somewhere between 35 and 40 minutes, I think, to a sermon. And I have been known to bleed beyond that as well. So, so thinking about time really forces me to cut all unnecessary uh, uh, stuff. And so, you, you know, the saying of a sculpture, when you remove and you remove and you remove and the thing that's left is the beautiful sculpture. So with, uh, with the Christmas Eve service and, and when I preach on Good Friday as well, I really have to be strategic of what, what I leave. And the feeling that I had in this particular message was I wanted to sprint to Christ as quickly as possible and hang out there as long as I could. That was the uh, kind of my swing thought. Hmm. And um, I, I believe that Christ is what the visitor needs. Christ is what the, the, the oldest saint in attendance needs, and it's what will connect quickest and most readily to a child. But I, I don't want to do it in a superficial or in a predictable way. Um, good teaching involves some surprise and some... Um, discovery. So how do you help someone discover Christ fresh on a holiday that can feel fairly worn out for some people, particularly on Christmas Eve? The, we were talking about commercialism. By the time a mom or a dad or a grandma or a grandpa gets to Christmas Eve, they may feel pretty worn out by the season at that point. So how do you help a tired, beleaguered, over-commercialized Christian or a skeptical seeker who happens to be in town for the holiday? Um, what will help them both at the same time? That's the challenge of a Christmas Eve sermon, I think. That's good. And you both are elders in the church, and so 
um, I, I have a s special desire to help you feel like, because uh, because you're there to you're you're there serving, helping. You have official responsibilities, you know. But um, when you know when you when you said to him that you felt particularly blessed, I want I don't want to take my elders and my ministry leaders for granted, but I want them to all feel like, hey, uh, this was worth my while. Uh, I got something special tonight. I heard something special from God tonight that I would have missed if I wasn't here. And I'm not sure I would have heard anywhere else if I had gone anywhere else. So those are, these are some of my burdens that I, that I bring. There was a, we were talking a little bit too before that, you know, there was a connection because your sermon from Christmas Eve was Old Testament and uh, the sermon Christmas morning was from Luke chapter two. So there was a little bit of carryover and you know, what you just said about focusing on Christ, I think was, was um, very poignant because of the connection. And Tim was saying earlier, it's like, you know, we have Christmas Eve and then we had Christmas worship the next day, merely a couple hours um, later. And um, I think they both overlapped really in uh, a perfect way, actually. So maybe that was planned. Uh, I, I think probably you were able to see it more than I was. I mean, the, the schedule was set out months prior and the selection of Luke 2 and the Christmas story for Christmas Day was done for a good while as a placeholder, meaning I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to preach on Christmas Day. What did you notice in terms of the connection, Tim? just felt, <clears throat> you know, in, in Psalm 24, um, I think the thing that stood out the most to me in, in that... that um, devotional or that message that you gave was how God, um, none of us <clears throat> are able to approach God. We, we can't get to him, but he gets to us. And so, and, and that's a very, very boiled, distilled down. <clears throat> you had a lot more to say than just that, but, you know, if I were to take one that's thing away... Right. That's what I'm taking away. And then the very next morning in Luke 2, we see exactly how that happens. Hmm. And then you're preaching on the wonder of, of Christ's birth. And I, I really appreciated you going through some of the specific details that make it wonderful. But just the very fact that Christ was born and that God from Psalm 24 comes to us is a one, like that's mm -hmm. a wonder to mm -hmm. me, you know, um, that's, that's the joy of my salvation, you know? And so those two things connected very clearly in my mind as I was listening to you preach on Christmas day and about how wonderful the Christmas story is and what has actually happened. And then thinking back to the night prior going, yeah, we look what God has done. Like, mm. This is like double fold 
triple fold, quadruple fold, wonderful, um, to, to infinity really. But, um, that, that was the connection in my head. Uh, I, I don't think like you said, it didn't seem like you had, you didn't purposely mash no. those together. You didn't mention Psalm 24 while you're preaching Luke two or anything like that. But in my mind, it was a very clear connection between those two as, I mean, let's just be honest. God's word is his one holy, comprehensive, non-contradictory word. So right. like there is going to be connection there. But to me, what you, what God spoke through you in those two messages to me and to my heart had, it was one, it was one message. Well, <clears throat> that's great, Tim. There, there is God, the Holy Spirit, working behind the scenes in the preaching, and there's also, of course, Gerhardus Voss. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. But throughout the Psalm series, I think in the end there wound up being 17 installments in that series. I was regularly revisiting the kingdom of God and the church by Voss, uh, Old Testament eschatology by Voss, and to a lesser extent, his biblical theology. And in his Old Testament eschatology, he's got a great statement, which I've referenced either in a podcast or in a sermon, I don't remember which, which is that the, the nativity story is is told in Old Testament language, meaning Mary's song is is a concatenation of psalms. It's just like six to twelve psalms and a few and some from Hannah's song in First uh, Samuel two, just essentially stitched together. With the stitching is obvious, like it's not an attempt at some new organic thing, although it hangs together well. It's obviously citation of the Old Testament. Simeon does the same thing. Zechariah does the same thing. So, um, the, and, and then Boss says that the nativity story is, is, um, it, the word isn't conceals, but it 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 rests upon a, an incarnational foundation. So the incarnation is the theological impulse or the theological engine that gives meaning to the nativity story. <clears throat> An incarnation is the mystery of the Old Testament. The, the mystery of the Old Testament is that the Messiah who would save Israel would be God incarnate. And the Messiah who would save Israel and Jehovah God run through the Old Testament in a little bit of an, of an echo relationship. They sound like two people calling at one another on opposite sides of the cliff, but faith under, understands them progressively as Scripture unfolds as being one and the same person. The, the Messiah is the incarnate God. And there's no other way to explain the Old Testament uh, breadcrumbs of, of messianic prophecy except to see them as one and the same person. 
So in that sense, it's really cool. It's kind of a long explanation, but it was really cool to culminate a psalm series in Luke 2. Mm. So mm -hmm. what do you think about that, Tim or Scott? Mm. I think you have excellent planning. <laughs> I, wish, I wish I had done it consciously as it is. You just sort of look down at and out popped this calf. <laughs> Except in the other direction, the, the, Lord, the Lord's glory in this case, hopefully. Yeah, I think it's good that, um, you know, what are we really talking about at Christmas? We're talking about, um, and you talked about on Christmas morning, the, the magic. Uh, and you alluded to C.S. Lewis again and, and the wardrobe and things that only children kind of get, you know, find wonder at. And I think the the wonder is that Christmas, what you're really talking about is the king. And a lot of your sermon on Christmas Day was about how um, he's kind of an unexpected king. He doesn't come in any way that we would have seen. But of course, if you read, like you said, the Old Testament, you know, um, you see how the king is going to come in unexpected and uh, unexpected ways. And you talked about how um, the... Uh, the poverty of Christ and, and his birth. He didn't, he didn't come with any fair. Well, he did come with fanfare of the angels singing, but not in man centered mm -hmm. type of ways. So I think it is, it is good that um, the way culminated with Luke two. So. Yeah, actually you even ended your sermon on Luke two Referencing the Psalms in I, Joe I, Bailey's I did. Poem. I did. Now that I think about it. Yeah, I did. That was fortuitous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just to, to, to recap that, it was a poem that, that Joe Bailey had written that was, I think the point you were making was um, why we, we wonder why Jesus was born in a manger. There's all those other houses in Bethlehem. Yeah, mm. isn't that a great, it's a great thought. Mm -hmm. And then I think in the poem, if I recall, Joe turned that in on us at Christmas time. And basically, are we making room in our homes mm -hmm. for Christ? Um, I think your application was... As Christians, we need to make room, not just for Christ, but for the, the outcasts, the, the, the people who don't fit in. Um, like that, that's what our responsibility is. It's not an option, I think is what you had said. Yes, yeah, so this is the deeper cut. So um, I'm, I'm honoring my one of my spiritual mentors in, in reading his dad's poetry. And I'm also doing my best, P part of the honor is to inculcate what I was given in the lives of other people, to, to pass it on. And we talked generationally a couple weeks ago, right, Tim, when my mom and my, my son were, mm -hmm. were in the room When I read that poem, if you can picture a movie where you have kind of a, 
a collage of scenes in a person's mind that's splashed on the screen, say, of a, of a whole life. That's what went through my mind as I was reading that poem. All the scenes in my life over the last 30 or 35 years of <clears throat> being in t Tim's home. I never got to meet his father, but uh, being in the homes of others in that church where I was mentored and brought up in the faith and seeing, um, being in my mother's home and seeing people that had no other place to go uh, in our own home, my wife early on as a couple, even before we had children, were having people into our home and spending time with loveless, homeless people, sometimes more figuratively than actually, but always looking on the margins and including people. And to give <coughs> one <coughs> a shout out to my wife, who's a ministry partner and, and a best friend, <clears throat> excuse me, of all, uh, we have six children. All six children were, five of them were natural births. All six of them were attended by women in her life who were not professionals, but were friends who joined her through the birthing process. And that role actually has a name. It's called a doula. And uh, some of these women had never done that before. But Polly and I knew that the sort of support that she needed in bringing this child into the world from her womb went beyond my skill set. I know that will come as a shock to both of you guys. <laughs> but um, having another woman or two uh, praying for her, reading scripture to her, holding her hand, um, helping the midwife. In some cases, we had midwives. A couple of them were home births. Uh, fetching things, uh, a, a cool cloth on her forehead, um, an admonishment, an exhortation, like only a sister in Christ could give. Um, if, In some cases, the births went quite long, and I, I was just exhausted. And so while I was resting, she continued to labor with the support of, of sisters and mothers in the faith. Um, when that thought has been shared with other women in our church and in other circles, Christian circles around South Jersey, Polly has mostly been met with shock. You did what? You had someone else with you while you were giving birth and not a doctor? So the idea that you're including people in your life that our, our lives aren't, aren't, we don't live in a fortress, but we live in kind of a semi-permeable membrane where friends and strangers regularly find their way to our homes. To me, that's part of that collage of, of just a life spent mixing it up with other people um, where I've been uncomfortable at other people's take because it's, it's, Strange. It's uncomfortable sometimes to have a stranger at the table. I've been at friends' houses where strangers have been invited in. I'm like, wow, what do we do now with this weird person here? And my children and others in my life have felt the same at, at our table. And yet I think this is 
part of why we have the nativity is that's the way we're supposed to live. That sounds, I mean, the first time we met, you know, going back uh, many years was one of the things that we hosted some kind of social gathering at our house. And we were just, we were typically used to having friends from church or family at our house. But um, one of the first times we did have these gatherings, you were a little tardy to the gathering. And some people, you know, that you had invited that we didn't know, you sent them our address. And so we had complete strangers walking up our sidewalk to our house. And uh, that took a little bit of, you know, especially for my wife, a little bit of um, sanctification. Mm -hmm. But also, too, it's like, no, it's okay. We're, you know, we're kind of, you know, working on this new project a little mm -hmm. bit. And we're going to have to meet some people that we haven't met before that you had connections. So I don't know how well, I don't remember how well you knew some of these other families, but it was a little anti-South Jersey, so to mm -hmm. speak, you know. Yeah, and there's no excuse for being late, but nevertheless, it was a, <laughs> a, a good lesson. And uh, these tend to be steep learning curves. Right. You know, there's no comfortable way to get comfortable with strangers other than being uncomfortable for a while and taking some risks. Yeah, and, and I appreciated the gentle but firm reminder on Sunday that that is not an optional thing no. if you're mm. a Christian. You, you guys remember both as ruling elders that the word in Greek for hospitality, practices hospitality, is philozenos, or a version of that, a lover of an alien. So I've said hospitality is not just people who can repay you. That's quoting Jesus in the gospel now, but it's, it's, an, it's an alien person without some, some sort of wanderer, sojourner, who probably can't pay you back. Right. And that involves discipleship, both of your wives and your children, and sometimes extended family when when that's not what they expect. That's not necessarily in the, in the playbook. It also involves saying no sometimes to family gatherings so you can spend time with, with strangers. And that's certainly in play at Christmas, isn't it? Yeah. And that's, that's striking, a, striking at a, a kind of a big no-no, and at least in this neck of the woods, mm -hmm. you know, where family often, almost always come comes first um, in every sense of the word. Mm -hmm. And I mean actual uh, blood, blood right. relatives. Right. So um, it's hard. It's hard to do. That's why I very much appreciated the, the reminder because we are, I mean, we are the strangers. Mm -hmm. like we, we're estranged from God. So we're all in the same boat, every single one of us. So when you come to someone whom you might not be familiar with or might find different as opposed to yourself or your own proclivities, they're really, in the eyes of God, no different than you. Yeah. But we're both strangers. Now, we all know who's the champion of this on our board. <laughs> it's Will. <laughs> yeah. He has a knack for making all of us uncomfortable. 
I've, I've actually got. I, I'd say I, it's gift. It's a gifting. I think yeah, it is, is a yeah. gifting. Yeah. But f for having wax, so I'll let you decide if it was eloquent or just waxing. <laughs> mm. <clears throat> um, I've I've actually been upset with Will on more than one occasion for being so doggone hospitable, <laughs> uncomfortably hospitable. Like, why'd you have to do this to me, Will? Now I actually have to show. I have to go without a playbook and and kind of freestyling and probably you know some similar dynamics is maybe how my my uh, missional posturing affected mm. Scott and his wife. I've I've been placed in that uncomfortable position many many times. I do not like it. Piv pivoting a little bit, any any uh, interest in? digging into one of my favorite topics, which is text criticism and the written record of scripture and the historicity of the gospels and skeptical attacks upon factual claims and all those things, talking about the, the, uh, the, when uh, Quirinius was the governor of Syria and all that <laughs> stuff. I was going to see how many times we could say that, say his name in the podcast, yeah, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> Go ahead. You got another. I mean, you you talked about some of that in yeah, your you sermon. Did. I did. You have, you have yeah, I did. Additional. Uh... No, just uh, do, do you, does that? Do you tend to struggle ever with uh, questions of of did this really happen or because I I find that some people struggle with these kinds of things and others don't. Yeah, I wouldn't say that it's not a struggle of mine personally. Um, I don't, that could be because I, I haven't indulged and spent too much time, you know, looking at the arguments. I, to me, it seems that when arguments are presented um, counter to the, the truth of the Bible's text, they seem to be, so they don't hold water very yeah. well. So, so my, my j just to put... So Luke Timothy Johnson in his commentary on Luke said, clearly, this didn't happen. Luke had to find a way to get Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem. So that's what he said. Interesting. He had to find a way. So this is what he did. He basically, he didn't go so far as to say he made up the census, but that, that's the implication. Hmm. How about, how about you, Scott? Um, maybe with me, not so much New Testament criticism, but uh, still, I guess with, if we're, when I'm engaging with uh, non-Christians, it's um, stories of you know Noah, for example, and the flood, and <laughs> you know sometimes to them it's just too fantastical mm -hmm. for some world-altering event like that mm -hmm. to to happen. So it's more on the science. Mm -hmm. type of angle and the struggles with belief uh, with that in particular not so much more his historical new testament roman history mm -hmm. you know which probably would th be where this would fall mm -hmm. you know so I i'm aware of that tension also i think pastorally by taking a little nibble on a very small point that to your point, Tim, most Christians are just going to pass by this. 
you know, they read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and it completely washes over them. They're not asking, well, who was Quirinius, and is this act, you know? So by taking a microscope in on Quirinius and Caesar Augustus, which is Octavius, the adopted son of Julius Caesar, and uh, I'm letting people know that I took a deep dive on something that most people in a Sunday morning service, Christmas Day no less, will not be thinking about. And you can trust this, at least this detail. Hmm. And while I don't think that's going to necessarily persuade an atheist or a skeptic that might be in attendance, it might lower the resistance, to, to quote a phrase, to the message of Scripture. It might it might cause a kind of, uh, you know how the, the, they say, speaking of Christmas, that the Germans and the Allies in World War II had a truce on Christmas night, and they sang Silent Night mm -hmm. across the trenches. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can at least have a little Silent Night moment in, in our battle against God or against God's written word. Again, by uh, lowering the objections or by honoring someone who does have that question by addressing it in some detail without turning it into a lecture. Right. Yeah, I could tell that, you, and you said that you enjoy, you enjoy that. I do. And I could tell that you do just by the way you preach that part of your, yeah. your sermon. Yeah. I had a couple other people mention that as well, but uh, what a good place to start. So the preacher is fascinated by the fact that we actually are holding, you know, all three of us here have Bibles in front of us, actually holding a copy, a written copy of something that actually happened. And I happen to think that it's, you know, for the sake of the sermon, I said it's, it's accurate. You know, I wasn't going into, is this the infallible, inerrant, inspired word of God? I think it is. But at that point in the message, this is, this is an accurate record. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, you're talking about the wonder. The wonder of, the, of the, the record itself. And I think... We can, <clears throat> and yeah. since it's something that I'm... I'm just regularly, personally amazed at in my own personal studies. I have a whole shelf of books on these things, a couple shelves. Yeah, I think, I think I, I don't think about that enough, you know? And when you put it in context, like, I, I don't know who my great-great-great-grandparents were. No. I have no idea. Don't know their names, don't know where they live, don't know nothing about them. Should, but yet should, we have a record. If, if you want to know, you should talk to Fitch, my son. He now works at the Genealogical Society in Boston. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. Wow. My in-laws just showed up because my daughter has to do the family tree project. And then she showed up with a poster that my wife did in middle school of the family tree. And Tim was just talking about that. I, I saw some pictures of, you know, my wife's ancestors and great, great, great grandparents. And there's, you know, pictures of them. And, uh from you know all over the country like missouri and different places and just to think about about that the work that has to go into something like that my daughter already has half her project done pretty much just has to kind of you know dress up a couple of things but yeah we don't 
talk about ancestors, you know, like that, or great grandparents, or you know, often like we should. And, that, and that's not that long ago. That right. was kind of where I was coming from. Like, the, the, I don't have any of that information from a hundred years ago. We have a record mm-hmm. from two thousand years ago of what happened. Like that is amazing, you know, and it, the fact that it's accurate. And I, I don't think I often mull that over. I don't, I don't consider, I kind of take it for granted because it's the Bible and I believe it to be true. And so I don't think about the implication of how wonderful that actually is. So to, to be quite specific, verse two says, this was the first census. Is that what it says in Luke two? <clears throat> yes. So <clears throat> I guess my, my claim in the message is this is not the census that's recorded in Acts 5 attributed to Quirinius. <clears throat> Luke seems to know that when he says this is the first census. So are we right in immediately dismissing this as non-factual when Luke seems to be self-aware that there are two censuses attributed to Quirinius. And I think, I think we're right to, to give Luke the benefit of the doubt at this point because in any number of other historic documents, including Suetonius, who we apparently trust at some level that Caesar Augustus only did three censuses and if you wonder what we're talking about, listen to the message, because <laughs> I, I talked about this a little bit in the, in the message. We're all too ready to attribute historicity to Suetonius, but Luke, not so much, because this is the only record in the ancient world of two censuses done by Quirinius, not one. I'm not saying that resolves all our questions here, and if, if someone has uh, a, an argument to to make with me, I gladly would engage in it and respectfully listen to, you know, your, your version of how things don't work by Luke's effort to connect the narrative. But it, you, you can't just dismiss it as sort of Luke making something up. He's clearly aware of it, and he's gone to some lengths to situate it. By the way, <clears throat> Caesar's Acts were published in bronze on pillars throughout the Roman Empire. These are the res, res gesti, the kind of his memoirs of being Caesar. <coughs> Why would you mention two, <coughs> sorry, two historical names of Roman leaders in a book if, if you weren't, even if it was published uh, in the mid-2nd century, which I think it was written much earlier than that. Why would you possibly do that? If it was easy for someone to to prove you Correct. Wrong. And Justinian, or Justin, in his apology, said, these records are available. You can go check them. And he wrote that in 125. So I, I do get a great deal of uh, joy, and I find the challenge... Uh, helpful to my faith and uh, I know not everybody does hopefully I didn't get carried away in the sermon but uh, just enough to let people know that that 
it's important, and I guess I'm making, I'm also making the argument to the elders who oversee the preaching of, of the word at Mercy Hill. I think apologetics is important in the pulpit. Do you agree? And I'm assuming that both of you want me to, to, to a point, make apologetic claims in the pulpit and not just talk about Jesus, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. I also really enjoy hearing you uh, pronounce all of those Roman names multiple times. Make us all feel really dumb and inadequate. <laughs> I just like the challenge. <laughs> well, that, that was your, your first point was it was it's the wonderful written record. And um, I think you, you, you did, you made, your, you made the argument that we, could, we can trust the uh, the record of, of our Savior's birth, and especially just the events surrounding it. You didn't really mention it too much, but the, you know, in Matthew, you talk about the, with King Herod and all of the children, the firstborn sons that, you know, and it came down that they all had to be killed so that the, there's more, there's more to the story than you had time clearly mm -hmm. to get into as far as, you know, your, your sermon, but this isn't the only thing. There's a lot of other things that we can trust, especially from the Gospels, because each of the writers pulled out different aspects That's of true. the written story of, of our true. Savior's birth. So. Except Mark. Yeah. <laughs> Mark, Mark doesn't have time for the nativity. He jumps right in. Yeah. Although, you know, incarnation is throughout Mark. Just It, up, it shows up in different ways. But... Um, <clears throat> Back to the written record, how amazing that we have four Gospels, one of which doesn't contain the nativity. You know, I find that to be an affirmation of our faith. Hmm. The, um, going back to, Tim, what you were talking about, the application of, uh, and and strangers, the um, Phil, you mentioned uh, check your expectations is one of the one of the takeaways, and um, think about the the holidays that that we all had. Uh, maybe Phil, do you have anything for how we can kind of continue to ponder the wonder of of uh, Christ and and His birth? And um, one of the things you also added was study the scriptures this year. And that's always just a reminder to me of how well, I'm trying to get a jump start on my Bible reading for the new year. So I have a little bit of a buffer. So I don't know if it smart, counts as far as move. Absolutely. Know. It does not count. It does not count. <laughs> if I get in the mind machine now, you know, <laughs> Sunday morning. Um, yeah. So the ex, you know, I have expectations for my own spiritual growth in, in the new year and um, just kind of getting into it as, you know, right away as, you know, if possible, maybe I'm getting in trouble with that, but, uh, yeah, I don't, you know, do you have any encouragement for, I guess, like for me and for other people for how we can kind of, uh, improve upon ourselves? Sure. So just to, for our listeners, what is your aspirational goal for scripture reading this year? Uh, hopefully at least make it into uh, April, you know, as far as my Bible reading plan. <laughs> So you're, you're going to read scripture every day? Is that the goal? Yeah, yeah. And try to, uh, you know, I should, I should read with somebody else because I think uh, 
if uh, if you're reading with somebody else, it kind of helps you to stay. Yeah, it does. Stay after, and also to just encourage my encourage my my family to read scriptures as well. We try to do it together as a family, um, and I think I'm always just reminded, you know, of just checking in with my kids to see what what they're learning from mm-hmm. scripture. I, I definitely want to be uh, more involved in that area. Yeah, yeah, with teens. Checking in gently is is important. Checking in, but doing it in a, in a gentle manner. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never read the Bible as a teenager, and um, no one checked in with me. But that doesn't mean that my, particularly my mother, wasn't praying for me along these lines, and she would initiate family devotions from from time to time. I think. Um, for myself, I'd like to read through the, the whole Bible this year. Are you hoping to get through the yes. whole Bible? Yes. Do you, do you have a particular schedule that you've chosen? or? or I'll just, it? I'm going to try and stick to the McShane plan. McShane so, plan? Yeah. You're going to do the full McShane, or I think Tim Keller has a half McShane that does it over the course of two years. Oh, I didn't know about that yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, it's a helpful, it's a helpful. Okay. I like the McShane ordering and, and stuff, but sometimes uh-huh. it's a lot. But yeah, I'll, I'm going to use the McShane too. So maybe we could be uh, scripture reading yeah. buddies. Yeah. <clears throat> um, for for kids, what what do you find that works? Is it just kind of do maybe just do a New Testament reading for the year or something like that? What's kind of a, a healthy goal for? Well, up to for, about the age of eight to ten, you can re- require it without too much resistance. Mm-hmm. But once you know children hit become the, that tween age years and then certainly when they become teens and they're taking communion for themselves mm-hmm. um, that's a different matter your kids are 16 uh, 15 and 12 15 and 12 so um, I think checking in at this time of year encouraging them to set a goal and if if your kids are open to that mm-hmm and I'm guessing your two kids probably would be open to that and have it be a modest goal, maybe focused on the Gospels and then um, um, check in with them maybe once a month and just see how it's going. Yeah, that's good. And um, I was reminded recently, particularly with our daughters, they need time with us and we need to make time for them and and it doesn't matter if they're particularly interested in what we're doing but so whether it's yard work or working in the garage or running an errand or or whatever and in those relational moments they are reminded that they can trust us so the checking in on the Bible can't be done in isolation from developing, a, particularly with our girls, a larger context of a relationship of trust. And what keeps kids from reading the Bible is the same thing that keeps adults from reading the Bible, which is busyness and sin. Mm-hmm. So if your kids are struggling with either one then um, or boredom, then they're not going to want to share that if they, there's not a, a trust-based relationship there. Mm-hmm. So 
yeah, those are those are some thoughts. That's good. Kind of out of out of lessons that I'm actively learning myself. Mm. What do you think, Tim, about reading the scriptures? You have you have a routine you follow. I am uh, I'm switching it up for the new year. I just um, actually was uh, kind of re encouraged. I had this idea a while back. And a few weeks ago when we were recording one of these podcasts, I think it actually might have been last week, you had mentioned that you have your grandmother's Bible? I do. Right? Yeah. And you used to look at it when you were preparing sermons when you were a young pastor. And that reignited the thought in my mind that I had had many, many months ago of wanting to for my devotional time, read through the scriptures, have a journal Bible, and journal in the Bible for my kids, hmm. specifically, oh. to then give that to them later in life. That's great. That's a great and idea. So I had, I had gone so far as to get a Bible to do that for my daughter, and then I've not written anything in it. Okay. It sits on her nightstand in her room, and we read it every night. Okay. She goes, she, my daughter's two and a half. Daddy, uh, I said, Becca, what do you want to read tonight before bed? Read the Bible, Daddy. Hmm. And so I'll read a psalm or mm-hmm. read from the gospel or whatever. So I can't take that Bible out of her room because she will be very upset. So I bought I bought um, two kids, one on the way. So I bought three identical journal Bibles from the Westminster bookstore sale, Bible sale right now. They're coming today and starting next week, my devotions each day will be journaling in those Bibles mm. for my mm. kids. Um, I'm hoping that not only do I make it through the Bible in the year, which is my plan, but to kind of, <clears throat> sorry, read it from a different perspective, not just to get through it, but thinking about my kids mm. as I'm reading it, mm. praying for them, you know, just having a, a, a father's view of it, I guess. It'll be something completely novel and new to me, but I'm hoping that um, it'll, you know, give me some new perspective on some things that I've read many times. I mean, I think I've read Genesis 1 <laughs> a couple hundred times because sure. it, I always start there. Yeah, I refuse to start anywhere else. And then, uh, so I know, I know Genesis 1 real well. I don't know uh, Malachi quite so well. Um, but yeah, that, that's my plan for the, for the year. A quick plug, speaking of buying Bibles, I bought a few years ago Daily Light for the Daily Path, which is a devotional Bible. And it divides the scriptures up into daily readings. And at the head of each reading is a prayer that's stitched, scripture stitched together. So... Mm. You know, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Teach me your way, O Lord. Show me your truth. Guide me in truth. So that's the two Bible verses kind of stitched together, and it does that. And that was a helpful tool because it was an actual Bible divided into devotional readings. Yeah. But all scripture. Yeah. So I, I, I like that resource, too. And speaking of scripture, maybe as we uh, bring the podcast to a close, I can put
put in a plug for our next sermon series, First Peter. Yeah, we're excited for that. That won't be um, that won't be on next week's episode because you're off. Right. Um, but the following week we'll we'll get to dive into that. Are you excited? You've been prepping for quite a while now. For a while. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited for it. It's a companion series to the series of sermons preached earlier this year in the book of James, because there's significant overlap between 1 Peter and James. And um, um, for people who are thinking at kind of a high meta level, there's actually quite a bit of illumination on both books from the Psalms and some of the themes in the Psalms. So I'm kind of working on a long arc of instruction for the church about how to live out our faith in a meaningful way in a, in a largely negative, hostile world that no longer seems, in many, many spheres, seems to be quite antagonistic to faith. Mm-hmm. Lots to look forward to in the new year. Oh, yeah. Any um, last parting thoughts for 2022 from either of you? I know I said it. <laughs> Hadn't occurred to you that uh, we're two days away from from 2023. Um, yeah, I hope uh, you, you always want to uh, to make improvements, especially upon yourself, like I was saying a couple minutes ago. So um, just it gives me time to just kind of do a, a good assessment of myself and the things I want to improve upon, things I maybe didn't did well um maybe just in my own personal ministry or my ministry to my family or, or my career so um hopefully you know our listeners would would do the same as well and take inventory of of how you can uh be uh, a better person so i'm not going to go into the things that you know the ups and downs of 2022 and <laughs> the lives of everybody or society in general <laughs> I'll just say, Tim, I look forward to seeing you in a year. Likewise. There you the go. Sen- the sentiment is, is on the side of the table as well, Phil. Um, and I want to I wanna say thank you to Scott for hosting us today. And I hope that we've been good house guests and might get invited back in the, in the future. Oh, yeah, of course. It's good to have you guys here. That's all for us today on The Deeper Cut. Thanks so much for joining us. We will see you in 2023.